But now today, of course, is, is Palm Sunday, as you probably already figured out, uh, a day that, that most of us know commemorates Jesus' triumphal procession into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey in the midst of a jubilant crowd. But when I was putting this together, I was, I was wondering how many of us, though, are aware of the, the deeply and very revolutionary implications of this event and of, of what it means for us all these centuries later. And what I want to do today is kind of give you three panels of an answer to those questions, three panels that we're going to try to kind of piece together. And once we have them linked, I hope, I hope that you'll see today's very familiar story in perhaps a very different light than you maybe have before. So let's go ahead and dig into it. So our reading this morning is coming from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 21, verses 1 to 10. So hear now the words of the true and living God. Matthew writes, As Jesus and the disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the town of Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into the village over there, he said, and as soon as you enter it, You'll see a donkey tied there with his colt beside it. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone asks what you're doing, just say, the Lord needs them. And he will immediately let you take them. This took place to fulfill the prophecy that said, tell the people of Jerusalem, look, your king is coming to you. He's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. The two disciples did as Jesus commanded. They brought the donkey and the colt to him and threw their garments over the colt, and he sat on it. And most of the crowd spread their garments on the road ahead of him, and, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Jesus was in the center of the procession, and all the people around him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest! The entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. Who is this? they asked. You know, as we begin to piece our puzzle together today, what I want to do is look at some whys. Like, why did Jesus enter Jerusalem on a donkey? Why not on a horse? Why not in a chariot? Or, come to think of it, why didn't he just walk like he always did? And while we're at it, why did the crowds greet him with these palm branches? What's that all about? And then they throw down their coats in front of him, but what is it that they think they're doing? And to answer this, to answer those questions, we're going to do what we always do and turn to Scripture for the answers, to provide some insight and, and kind of pull this puzzle together in this three panels. And to do that, we're going to look at three particular Scriptures. So those three are going to be 1 Kings chapter 1, Zechariah chapter 9, and Psalm 118. And as we work through these together, I want you to see how they all fit together to provide a context for this Palm Sunday that we're celebrating together. So I want to jump right in and start with 1 Kings, where we learn that Jesus was not the first king to ride triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem seated on a donkey. Now, I, I know from spending time with many of you that we have a lot of animal lovers in here, right? Animal lovers, yeah. And I've gotten a chance to either meet or hear stories about your four-footed family members and, and, you know, and the gospel writers were interested in animals, too. They were interested in a donkey and her unridden colt. And their inclusion in this story is no accident. It isn't just a, 
a trivial detail that was tucked into the narrative to make it an endearing story. Because long before Jesus, one of Israel's most famous kings, King Solomon, had done exactly the same thing at the direction of his father immediately before he was enthroned as king of Israel. And that comes to us from 1 Kings chapter 1, and this is what it says. And then King David ordered Zadok the priest, Nathan the prophet, Benaiah and Yehudiah. And when they came into the king's presence, he said to them, Take Solomon and my officials down to Gion Springs. Solomon is to ride on my own mule. And there Zadok the priest and Nathan the prophet are to anoint him king over Israel. Blow the ram's horn and shout, Long live King Solomon. And then escort him back here, and he will sit on my throne. And he will succeed me as king, for I have appointed him to be ruler over Israel and Judah. So his officials got together. Uh, they did as David commanded. And then the scripture goes on to say that all of the people shouted, Long live King Solomon. And all the people followed Solomon into Jerusalem, playing flutes and shouting for joy. And the text says the celebration was so joyous and noisy that the earth shook from the sound. Kind of like when Ruthie hit those high notes at the end, shake the rafters off this place. <clears throat> so what I want you to see here is, here's Solomon, right? Arguably one of Israel's greatest kings, the wisest and wealthiest man that's ever lived. The man that God had intended to build his temple and he rides in triumph into the city. And all of this, all of this done at the plan and according to the specific will of his father. Okay, so that's, that's one piece of our puzzle. Hold on to that in a section of your brain over here. And now I want to show you the next piece in the prophecy of Zechariah. A prophecy which speaks of the coming Messiah and of a future king. And is one who will be even greater than King Solomon. So if you have your Bibles, look in Zechariah chapter 9, beginning in verse 9, <clears throat> which reads, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And I will remove the battle chariots from Israel and the war horses from Jerusalem. I will destroy all the weapons used in battle. And your king will bring peace to the nations. His realm will stretch from sea to sea and from the Euphrates River to the ends of the earth. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I'll release your prisoners from death in the waterless pit. Now, when you read this scripture, it's, it's impossible to miss Jesus there, right? I mean, in this stunning and very specific prophecy, and in it, the coming Messiah, this future king, not only rise into Jerusalem, humble and, and seated on a donkey, but when he enters into the fullness of his reign, he establishes not just this little localized monarchy in the Middle East. The text says he'll have a universal reign that'll stretch to the ends of the earth, right? one that's characterized by, by peace and not war. Right? The prophet said the, the battle chariots and the war horses and all the weapons used in battle will be removed from the land. And that's not because God is against a, a well-armed self-defense, right? You guys that went with us to the gun range, no. <laughs> We've got some well-armed folks in here. Because remember, Jesus is the one that told the apostles, he said, if you don't own a sword, you should go out and buy one. But in today's text, I take this to mean that Israel's no longer going to need weapons to defend itself 
Because when the king comes, there won't be enemies around to bother them. Enemies with their own weapons to to give them any trouble. And we're told all of this will be brought about by the means of a covenant sealed in blood. A covenant that sets captives free from the dry and waterless wasteland of physical and spiritual death. A place which is frequently in the Old Testament referred to that way uh, as the pit. So Zechariah here is clearly expecting a Messiah to influence not only the destiny of the living, but the destiny of the dead too. And so that links two of our pieces together in the puzzle. And I'm hoping that once you see kind of this Old Testament background start to fit into place, that Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem takes on a deeper significance as we move into this Holy Week that we're celebrating together and our celebration of Palm Sunday today. Because it helps us see that with, as with every other aspect of Jesus' life, he did everything intentionally. Everything he did had a meaning. A meaning that goes beyond just our present circumstances. And here he is deliberately, intentionally, echoing Solomon's royal entry into Jerusalem when he was enthroned as king. And he's also performing the prophetic sign of Zechariah's prophecy of the coming of the Messiah, doing it together. So in other words, Jesus is telling the people of his day, and by extension us, that he is both the new Solomon and the long-awaited Messiah in one person. And that every law, every sacrifice, every festival in the Old Testament is inextricably linked to the life of Jesus Christ. Uh, In other words, everything that God delivered to the children of Israel through his revelation to Moses was for one purpose, for one point only, and that was to point ahead to Jesus. And particularly the keeping of the Passover that Jesus in our story is riding into Jerusalem to celebrate. And it's at the beginning of this big event that our text from this morning joins in. Right? We read it's early Sunday morning. Jesus makes this dramatic public entry into the city. And for him, it was the end of, of all privacy and all safety. Right? He's at the mercy of the leaders now. And it's the beginning of what would be uh, an inevitable collision course between Jesus and the religious and political authorities of the day. And the difference between our Lord and these worldly powers that are going to array against him stand out in a really sharp contrast. Because Jesus wasn't the only important person to ride into the holy city that week. Now, if you guys have been in Sunday school class, you you know this because we studied it quite a bit, looked at it quite at length. But also entering Jerusalem from the opposite side of the city was the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate. Now, normally Pilate lived in Caesarea, out by the sea. So in other words, Pilate's spending most of his time in his beach house, just like most politicians do, right? (laughs) but, But with crowds of devout Jews now flowing into Jerusalem to commemorate their liberation from Egypt, these Romans naturally want to put on a display of force, a display to discourage any kind of uprisings and to keep the Jews from getting any idea about the possibility of liberation from Rome. And so during the Passover season, the Roman procurator moved his headquarters to Jerusalem to reinforce the Roman garrison there, the one that was permanently stationed in the Antonia Fortress overlooking the Jewish temple and its courts, with this great show of strength, a show that was designed to remind the people that they might have gotten out from underneath the sandal of the Egyptians in their past, but they were not going to throw off the boot of Rome in their present. And I want to share with you how one scholar described this 
this entry of the, of the Romans. He says, The spectacle that attended the procurator's entrance into the city included cavalry on horses, foot soldiers with leather armor, helmets, and weapons, imperial banners and golden eagles mounted on poles glinting in the sun. And in the middle of the procession was Pilate, the Roman governor, coming in the name of the emperor, who expected his subjects to worship him as a god. He continues writing, he said, It would have been a sobering, intimidating demonstration of raw imperial power and a visually poignant extension of the theology of Rome. A theology that was believed by the Romans to usher in a new era of world peace through military strength. Can you just imagine the, the sights and the sounds of this imperial procession, right? You, you've got the, the noise of the marching soldiers' feet. You've got the, the creaking of saddles and the, the clinking of bridles and the beat of the drum and, and behind it the swirl of all of this dust trailing behind them. That's on one side of the city. Now, exactly on the opposite, then there's Jesus' procession. And his was a little different, wouldn't you say? His procession started out small. Just him and his little band of men beginning on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley and down and up again to the eastern gate of the city. And then the crowds slowly start to gather, right? Gawking to see if this famous rabbi from Galilee is going to perform any other miracles like they'd heard about. Because now remember, Jesus usually moved around pretty quietly, didn't he? A lot of times the gospel records Jesus as saying to someone, now, now go and don't talk about this healing to anyone. Don't tell everybody where I am. See, but here though, he's intentionally setting in motion a well-planned and perfectly timed parade. Because not only is the manner of his entrance significant, as we've seen from the Old Testament, but his arrival at the time of the Passover festival is significant too. And it's a clear foreshadowing of the death of himself as an offering as the new Passover lamb and the final sacrifice. So now Jesus instructs two of his disciples to go ahead to the next village and upon entering immediately they'll see a colt tied there. One that's never been ridden. And they're to untie it and, and bring it back to Jesus. And he says, if anybody asks you what you're doing, just simply say, the Lord needs this colt. And immediately they'll give you permission to take it. Pretty amazing, right? It doesn't happen every day. And Jesus slowly rode into Jerusalem, completely aware of the prophecy he was fulfilling. And as he gets close to the city, we read, Jesus was in the center of the procession, and the people all around him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And you see, that wasn't by chance either. That's another direct link to Scripture, and it's our third and final piece of the puzzle we're going to fit here together. Because that phrase, Hosanna, appears only once in that way, only one time in the Old Testament, and that's in Psalm 118. See, that's what the crowd was, was singing and shouting as Jesus entered the city. They were singing this hymn that was very familiar to them, a, a liturgy that comes directly from Scripture, and it's also going to pull together those loose ends about the palm branches and the link to our King and His intention to offer up Himself for us. And it really kind of completes the background picture of Jesus' triumphal entry because it too describes the coming of a king. A king into the city. But what's so striking about it is the king in this psalm enters not to receive a throne, but to ascend to the altar and offer a sacrifice. So if you have your Bible, Psalm 118, beginning in verse 19. 
And it says, open for me the gates where the righteous enter and I will go in and thank the Lord. These gates lead to the presence of the Lord and the godly enter there. I thank you for answering my prayer and giving me victory. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and it's wonderful to see. This is the day the Lord has made and we will rejoice and be glad in it. Hosanna. Save us, Lord. Hosanna, please save us. Give us success. And those words in verse 25 there, save us, translate from the Hebrew phrase hoshiana, which it literally means to save us that they translated. And when we get to the time of Jesus' triumphal entry, that's what the people were calling out for as they traveled to Jerusalem with Jesus. They're shouting, Hosanna, son of David. Save us. Save us. And they're making this prayer of deliverance and, and they call Jesus son of David, identifying him with the, the royal line and recognizing him as part of the Messianic Davidic covered. And so you see, this is, a psalm is taken up by the pilgrims as they celebrate Jesus' entry to Jerusalem and it's no accident. But while the crowds might recognize that Jesus could be the long-awaited Messiah, what they don't see or perhaps what they refuse to see is what kind of king Jesus would be. And he's going now to reign. Because Hosanna isn't the last verse of that psalm. It continues, Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God and he has made his light shine on us. Join the festival with branches up to the horns of the altar. And so you see, when the people cried out to be saved... The Lord didn't ignore them. He sent them a Savior, just not the kind they expected. Because the altar on which Jesus would pour out that blood of the covenant isn't the bronze altar of the temple, but it was the table of the Last Supper in the upper room. And the throne that Jesus was about to ascend to wasn't the golden throne of Solomon. It was the wooden throne of the cross. You see the contrast there between what the Jews expected and what Jesus offered? You see the contrast between Pilate's march into the city and Jesus' procession? You see, Pilate proclaimed the rule of man. Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. Pilate's procession was a demonstration of raw imperial power. Jesus' parade demonstrated power and restraint. I mean, think about that for a minute. We don't hear much about that kind of power in our time, do we? Right? We, we glorify money. We glorify the power of knowledge. We glorify the power of the press and the power of influence and of force. Right? If a person achieves or a nation achieves power, we generally assume that that power is going to be put on display, right? You see that on the news every night. What we're not accustomed to is a philosophy that says, as one author did, power held in restraint is power at its highest. Power held in restraint is power at its highest. For it shows not only the possession of strength, but the possession of the power to control the strength that he possesses. And that's pretty rare. It's pretty rare in the history of the world. In fact, French Emperor Napoleon Bonaparte, after he was defeated at the, the Battle of Waterloo, he was sent into exile, and he had a lot of time to contemplate his rise to power and his achievements in Europe and his imperial legacy and he came to that same realization. This is what he wrote. He said, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ was no mere man. He said, between him and every other person in the world, 
There is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and myself all founded great empires. But upon what do these creations of our genius depend? They depend on force. And he went on to write, Jesus alone founded an empire upon love. And to this very day, millions would die for him. To this very day, millions would die for him. You see, Jesus had come to set up a kingdom, just not the kind that anybody was looking for. Right? The people wanted to use Jesus as a means to an end to overthrow the Romans and not as an end in themselves. Because triumph is not going to happen through armies or through the violence of weapons, but through the offering of his own life. By means of the blood of his covenant, a blood that brings home exiles, that sets captives free physically and spiritually. And Jesus comes now to accomplish all of that in our text today. And you know, when that happens, we read in verse 10, the entire city of Jerusalem was in an uproar as he entered. And it says, who is this? Who is this, they ask. And you know, that's the question that people have been asking for almost 2,000 years, right? Now, on the surface, it seems like a simple question of identification, but it's so much more than that because the answer to that question is crucial. You'll never be asked a more important question. And everyone has to answer it for themselves. Nobody's exempt. But how do you answer it? How do you answer it correctly? How do you know you've got the right answer? Well, for those that have ears to hear, the text today is just one of a thousand examples that if you trust Jesus Christ as your Savior, you put your faith in the right man. That you haven't mistakenly put your confidence in a mere prophet or in a dead Jewish rabbi. That you haven't followed an imposter, but you've entrusted your soul to him who is the true Messiah, the very one promised in God's infallible word. I mean, just looking at all these scriptures, how they lined up today, doesn't that help encourage you to the reliability of the scriptures? And you know, if those scriptures are reliable, and if God's promises come true, that means the rest of the things he promised us will be fulfilled too, right? Because that same Bible teaches that that same Jesus is coming again. Coming in a celebration procession, like the one that he had on Palm Sunday. But at his second coming, when Jesus comes as our great king, he's going to be mounted not on a donkey, but on a war horse. And his coronation parade is going to be the likes of which no one has ever seen. Revelation chapter 7, John writes, After this I saw a vast crowd too great to count, from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. And they were clothed in white robes and they held palm branches in their hands. And they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And then I saw heaven opened and a white horse was standing there. Its rider's name was Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him which no one understands except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name was the Word of God. The armies of heaven, dressed in the finest of pure white linen, followed him on white horses. And on his robe at his thigh was written the title, King of Kings and Lord of all Lords. Now that's a parade I want to be part of. Don't you? 
And the good news is you're invited. All you have to do is answer that question that the people ask as Jesus rode into Jerusalem that first time. When they said, who is this? Who is this? Is he a prophet? Was he a good teacher? Was he a phony? Or something much more? Was he the good shepherd? The son of God, the king of kings. The only trouble is though, either way, none of those answers really help with the question because it's not so much who Jesus is, but who Jesus is to you. It's who Jesus is to you. And if you haven't answered that question or if you're just learning that you haven't answered it correctly in light of the truth of God's word, I want to invite you to do that before you leave here today. Because now is the time. This may be the only chance you get. Today is the day. Don't let his parade pass you by. Amen? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray right now for any of those who have never really answered that question of who you are in their lives. And I pray, Father, that you would draw close to their hearts in this moment. Uh, And Father, we know that it's you that opens hearts, that you move minds, that you unblind eyes. And so, Father, you've promised that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that you raised him from the dead, that we will be saved. Not through the repeating of the words, but from the true admittance of Christ into our lives. So come now, Father, by your Holy Spirit, and convict and move and receive all of those, Father, who you're speaking to in this moment. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.